rather speculative, but Hartson made it more than that. A right turn inside marker. Well, he makes it look ridiculously easy, Ian Wright. He was helped, to be fair, but the taking of the chance, brilliant. Burkamp suddenly changed pace through the centre. It's Burkamp. That's magnificent. The move. And then this, which left Dabby's ass totally stranded. One of the greatest achievements since English football began. Arsenal have gone through an entire league campaign without losing. Hello Ramblers, Andy here and a very special Ramble Meets for you today uh, with the one, the only Arsene Wenger, who's been a huge part of English football culture for a, a very long time now. And that's something I wanted to get into with him. Obviously, he's been doing um, a lot of chatting in various different places um, as his new book on his career, uh, Life in uh, Red and White, is, is, is launched. Um, but I wanted to speak not just about his contribution to English football, but did he feel it was always destined? that he would end up here. He has a slightly different upbringing and background to what you might assume and uh, that was one of the main themes of our chat because um, Arsene Wenger is actually full of surprises even though you think you know him very well. But most importantly, like me, he loves Glenn Hoddle. So we're, we're here with you just having written the book, Arsene. Um I mean, everyone has a, a busy life in the modern world. That's that's clear. And it's difficult sometimes to analyze everything that's happening in your life while you're busy doing it. But I guess for someone such as you, who's got such an intense schedule, who's had such an intense schedule with football, was this the first time you've really had to reflect on your life in, in professional football? Yes, I must say it's the first time I had some space available and... Uh, I was as well reluctant to do it, you know, because you know that uh, it's not always easy to look back at all the mistakes you made in your life. Mm. And uh, and uh, I wanted to be honest, but I did it in the end. And I thought anyway, even uh, at least it'll be uh, useful, uh, will be a legacy for an experience at international level on management. So did you find out some stuff about yourself that you didn't know? I, uh, uh, for example, I knew the intensity of my passion. I didn't really analyze where it came from. And uh, looking back, yes, I discovered that uh, it is uh, happening. Uh, it happened in my childhood in the little bistro where I grew up. And as well, I discovered that my life uh, uh, was bigger than a dream. You know, uh, I couldn't dream to have the life I had. And uh, so uh, my message to young children today was that uh, life can be surprising on the good side. And when we talk about your childhood, that's something that's prominent in the in the early stages of the book. Now, there are a lot of assumptions made about public figures and there are a lot of assumptions made about you that, that are wrong, it's clear, certainly in, in England. I mean, it's always assumed that, I, I don't know, because because you, you come from France, that um, you, you're perhaps from a quite bourgeois background, but it's clear that that's not the case. You come from these quite agricultural origins. Exactly, and I spent my life on in the fields and I could make a cow and I was every day in action with horses. I turned the field over with the horses. That's what was my life, you know. I'm not at all... Uh, 
from a bourgeois side, who come from a very poor agricultural village. And is that, is that where the connection with England's made? I mean, maybe it's easier to say now that you've, you've, you've come through your whole career in England, but it does feel that you coming to England when you read the early stages of the book is, is, is destiny because it does feel almost quite an English way of, of, of perceiving and, and, and playing football. Yes, but I, I thought, you know, uh, I arrived in England uh, completely unknown, so I uh, was tested and uh, overall I just wanted to co- bring over my my passion. And I think where I was on common ground with England was more on the passion front than on the style of play front. But uh, I was more for an offensive, uh, short passing game and England was a bit maybe at the time a bit more direct. But... Uh, Overall, I must say, I inherited a group of players who were very skillful, much better technically than I thought they were. And when you talk about starting out on the big part of the journey, of course, Strasbourg is, is a huge part of that. And you talk about how as a child, uh, Rassen Club de Strasbourg was something to, to really aspire to. But the thing that struck me, and I guess might strike a lot of other readers, is the fact that from the beginning, you're coaching even as a, a player? Yes, I, I was very involved, in, very early involved in that. I educated coaches at the age of 25. And uh, so I was very early. My, man, my managers, my coaches pushed me to that. They must have sensed that I had the passion to do it. And uh, I learned a lot about the game at a very young age. So uh, I had no effort. I, I, I feel... Uh, on one side, I can say I worked my whole life like mad. On the other side, I can say as well, I never worked because it was always a pleasure to do what I did. But was, was the idea always in your mind to, to be a coach or was it just a responsibility that was given to you at Strasbourg and you just had to get on with it? Yes, it was a bit get on with it. And uh, I was not sure at all that I was made for this job at the top level, you know, because uh, I thought that the pressure is high and... Uh, uh, I'm not sure I could take that and overall uh, I've been pushed into it and when I did it I enjoyed it so I was prisoner a uh, little <laughs> bit of my passion and uh, I'm a guy who looks uh, very cool but uh, inside there is a lot of fire so people talk about you and I, I guess some of your more modern peers as being players who didn't have particularly amazing playing careers before you became top-level coaches. But of course, if you look back through the stats and the achievements, you were part of uh, a championship, a league championship winning squad at Strasbourg. Um, But you don't really talk much about your playing in the book. I mean, is that because the coaching was all-consuming? Is that because you felt a bit disappointed about what you'd done as a player or you didn't feel... No, I was not disappointed because... uh, I was, uh, it's quite a miracle what I did. Uh, imagine that you have never a coach until the age of 19. So it was a miracle to, to get where I was as a player. And uh, I spoke more about my uh, coaching experience just for one reason. Uh, the, the title of my book is My Life in Red and White, you know. So it is more about my coaching career than about my playing career. And... Uh, 
I wanted to say as well in this book, I just wanted to explain where does this passion come from and why was I so early pushed into coaching? It's just because my environment pushed me in it. So what do you rem- remember from the playing side of that title winning season and what did it teach you for going forward into coaching and coaching successful title winning sides? Well, uh, it is that uh, that team was very united, uh, had a very local uh, group of players and uh, it was an Alsatian team really with two or three players from outside and uh, overall uh, we had a manager who pushed us to play, to build up the game from the back and take the initiative to take the, go- the game to the opponent, you know. And I was influenced by that and uh, I educated the young players like that and later I remained faithful to that. So when you become a head coach in your own right, you're at Cannes and there's this terrific story in there about how you sign Lamine and Dai and you end up meeting him off the motorway, telling him to bring his boots and playing football with him. And that's how you try him out. I mean, it sounds really hands-on the life of a coach and th- that you had to do everything, not just coach the team, but you had a wider managerial capacity. Yes, uh, you know what is funny in this story is that uh, Lamine and Yai uh, made a great career as a player, yeah. after as a coach, and he's still, what is really funny, is a, a massive Arsenal supporter today. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. And uh, it was, I, 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 want, I, I took that example to show two things, how crazy I was and uh, how life has changed as well. To, today you have a battery of scientists of analysts uh, who, who uh, analyze every aspect of a player. And that at that time, it was a fact. Play against me and we'll tell you how good you are. And it was not bad as well. So how do you think the conversation around football for coaches and for analysts has, has really changed then, Arsene? Because it's clear that you're someone who's not just passionate about football, you're passionate about talking about football. You talk about when you were at Nancy and, and, and Monaco, you, you, you spent a long time and long nights, like not just watching videos, but but talking to those closest to you about the game. I mean, there are so many different levels of analysing the game now in professional clubs. How do you think the conversation has changed? Well, uh, I would say the, the main, what has changed, uh, I don't know how old you are, but uh, uh, at my age, when I started my career, you had to fight for information, you know. Hmm. You had to get, uh, to make miles, to find a good book, find a good training session. And uh, today, you flooded with information. So the modern manager is more by selecting the number of information he gets by selecting the two or three data that can help him to understand better what's going on. And uh, at our time, we needed to fight for it. On uh, the other side, the passion is still the same. I don't believe that uh, in this job, you can survive without passion. You can survive a few years, but you never last uh, 36 years like I did if you have not a huge passion for the game. And you have to be passionate, as you say, don't you? Because by the time you make it to Nancy, it's the same thing that you've got to 
do everything. Now you do have Aldo Platini, the the, the father of Michel Platini, a, above you, who's someone who you connect with. But it's a Nancy where you start looking into the players' lifestyles and how that can help them control of their diet and their sort of, I guess, what you call life hygiene in France. And and that was something that people marked out as a huge difference between you and everyone else when you arrived at Arsenal. Well, maybe, but uh, I don't think it was the only way. But I, I had the global approach of the performance, you know. Right. And I feel uh, uh, to perform, the, the environment of the player has to create the best possible conditions for the players to perform. And that's why I think uh, what you do on the pitch is a visible aspect of the preparation. And then you have the invisible aspect of a preparation that is how you eat, how you sleep, how you have a massage, how you stretch. And uh, so I was very much interested of the mental preparation. So I was very much interested in the global approach of the performance. And that for you, is, it's become almost, I think you describe it as, as a religion, don't you? Because it's something that you still ad- adhere to now. You, you live a very healthy life and you kind of led by example for your players, didn't you, always? Yes, I, I think the leaders have to carry the, the values and the demands uh, they want from the players, you know, and uh, that's why on that front, uh, I always felt that responsibility. And uh, overall, uh, I think as well, if you want to be focused, present, uh, you have to recover and to recover, you need to have a healthy life. If you, if you don't do that, you cannot every day be on the football pitch and demand the players uh, to practice well. Well, of course, a lot of people think part of a healthy life is a lot of sunshine. And you sort of certainly got that when you went to Monaco, which was your first real big head coaching job. I mean, you speak a lot about how you were able to get along with a lot of big players there. And there were some really huge players there like Amaros, um, like later on, guys like Yusuf Fofana and Glenn Hoddle, of course. You talk about being able to get along with players without middlemen being there. I mean, is that something that, in your opinion, clogged up the game as time went on, like players having bigger entourages? Yes, and I would say that uh, uh, one of the other changes is that uh, at the start of my career, the manager was uh, the only influence on the player, you know. Right. You had no parents, no agents. Uh, it was you directly with the player. When I could convince him, for example, George Weah, sometimes I went for a run with him at night uh, to improve his stamina. Uh, today, that would not be possible anymore. So, slowly, the entourage of the player became bigger and bigger, and the player is under pressure of multi-influences uh, around him. And the manager has lost a little bit of his influence on the player. He's still a big influence, let, don't take me wrong, because he still picks the team, and that power to pick a player or not is, uh, of course, still huge. Talking of that direct connection with players, how did that work when it, it, it came to agreeing the transfer of Glenn Hoddle? Because he ended up at Monaco. It looked like when he was leaving Tottenham in 1987, he was going to go to Paris Saint-Germain. But you managed to persuade him to come to Monaco instead. And he turned out to be a huge player for you. 
He was, uh, even I think a few years ago, was uh, voted the player of the century in Monaco, you know, that tells right. you a lot about the player he was and uh, how highly he was rated. Yes, I managed to persuade him and his agent, Dennis Roach, at the time, to join Monaco. And uh, he was a huge success. Uh, we won the championship in the first year. And many people know that uh, we have uh, been a uh, bit disadvantaged in a few other championships, but uh, uh, he was a fantastic football player. And uh, he had that quality right and left foot to give that ball behind the defenders. That was unbelievable. And he scored goals with me. I think in his best season with me, he scored 18 goals. Wow. Do you think people in France who may be not that familiar with English football then in that case were surprised by Hoddle? Because Hoddle's not a typical English player, is he? And it never was. No, uh, Hoddle is not a, a, a typical English player of that time at all. And uh, uh, people were surprised in France, yes. And it reminds you, us as well, all together, that at that time, uh, the English players were moving outside the country because there was not enough money in England. Mm. And uh, so let's make sure that doesn't happen again. What do you think is the difference then? You talked about Hoddle being unusual in his time. What do you think is the difference between the way that English players are coached and the sort of players that are produced nowadays compared to back in the late 80s or even when you became Arsenal coach in the late 90s? I would say uh, the technical level was outstanding. We take a player like Glenn Hoddle, a uh, left foot, left foot, right foot. The, the, the softness of his touch was unbelievable. And uh, I, uh, these players played a lot in the park, played a lot of... Uh, uh, outside uh, the structured game, you know, and develop their skills. And that exists less. Today we have gone, uh, the players are well prepared, better educated, better informed, but uh, uh, physically much better prepared, organizational-wise, uh, team-wise, maybe even much better prepared. But individually, the technical area is not the same, I think. And uh, that's why... Uh, I'm convinced that uh, on that front, uh, we have to change something. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Difficult to find your place. Yes, he has kept them holding on, but Wenger's found his place at last. The Japanese club Grampus 8 will keep him tied until the end of this month. Then he'll officially take over at Highbury on October the 1st, with Pat Rice confirmed as his number two. And so when you do end up arriving at, at Arsenal, of course, you've, you've come from Japan at the time where you ended up after, after Monaco. I mean, you, you had an incredibly successful time at Monaco, reaching a European final, winning the league championship. Um, but to apply those principles at a club like Arsenal, where in Monaco it's, it's different because the football aren't, footballers aren't the most famous people there. There's not that same amount of pressure. Certainly, they're not the same amount of people in the stadium. How much of an adjustment did it feel being put into that situation in Arsenal where you're in the old Highbury, which was really something when it was full and you, you feel a different a different type of football culture there? 
I feel a different type of football culture, but a different kind of passion as well, uh, you know. And uh, that means if you win, the support you get uh, is much stronger than in Monaco, because in Monaco you had to motivate the players in every single game with two or three thousand supporters in the stadium in winter. And in England you had a full house. So on that, on some sides, the, the stress was maybe higher, but the support was much bigger. And uh, it makes that as well. When you have a good team, it makes it much easier as well. So, so was that your role then, to bring a bit of calm to proceedings at, at Arsenal? Because, um, I mean, if you look at the way that football's been played in this in these current conditions, like most of the, the games are behind closed doors and we're seeing the, the, the balls in play more, um, players shout at the referee less, all that sort of stuff. So... Is it, is it almost impossible to separate the environment in England and the sort of football that's played? And was it your job to help the players to make the right decisions in such a high pressurized environment? Exactly what it is about. You know, you have to, uh, what does a football game demand is a full concentration, a calm in your decision making and control. Uh, in every single situation when we are provoked. So uh, these are three qualities that are absolutely vital. And of course, it demands to have these three ingredients. It demands as well uh, experience. And uh, when I arrived, I was lucky because I had uh, 10 or 12 players who were 30 or above. They, they knew their game, uh, had the composure. They were ready for a fight as well. You could not uh, bluff them, you know, and... Uh, I was lucky I inherited as well a, a good side. And you talk about that and you talk about how lucky you were to lean on those players, but you gave them something new as well. I mean, it's remarkable how quickly it turned around at Arsenal. You end up winning the double in 98. And Tony Adams in particular, he's one of the players who is one of those experienced players who talks about how you change things for him. How did you help him look at the game differently, do you think? You know, uh, I think uh, Tony Adams at that time uh, wanted to stop drinking and uh, he came out publicly to say that he's an alcoholic and that he wants to change. And uh, uh, I told the other players the way we can help him is by not drinking as well. So it was a good weapon for me. And I communicated well with him because I gave him some time. So it's really destabilizing when you go into that uh, uh, kind of uh, cure and uh, overall I sometimes he was exhausted and I gave him some rest and brought him in again and uh, so he, he was important of course because he was an exceptional football player but as well uh, he helped me to change the culture at the club and, and how important were the other players that you brought in that like Vieira and Petit bringing different habits and coming from different backgrounds I, I believe uh, they gave me credibility with the fans because they knew, they saw that I, I didn't bring average players, you know. Yeah. I brought players in who were top, top class. And uh, they gave me uh, uh, some credibility. Was people uh, thought, oh, we don't know how good he is, but at least he brings in good players. I mean, when you look at France's World Cup winning in 1998, Arsene. I mean, how do you feel about that? Not just as a Frenchman, but as someone whose development of players contributed it 
to it because you look at Petit, you look at Vieira who couldn't get in the first team at, at Milan when you brought him over. Do, do you feel proud about the, the role that you played in that? Very proud. Uh, first of all, it was my country who won the World Championship for the first time in the whole history of the country. And as well, because, uh, you know, players like Petit had not basically not played for five years and uh, in, a, in a national team. And I managed to convince uh, Jacquet to take him because there was a lot of reluctance for him in France. Right. And uh, I, he was basically uh, the man of the World Cup 98. Petit. Et but! Emmanuel Petit! Qui marque à la dernière minute du délire dans le Stade de France, 48e minute. So, what do you think working in England and, and playing in England and living in England did for Vieira and Petit and later Henri and, and Pires? And what did it do for you? What did it do for all of you in terms of changing the way that you guys looked at the game? Well, uh... I don't really know how much influence he had on the others, but uh, I, I, there were exceptional football players who who came in there and uh, brought a way to play football that convinced other people that uh, not only uh, what I want, my target was to play with with win and win with style, and these players allowed me to reach that target. You know, we were we were fast flowing team with explosive power, quick in transition, and uh, was as well very good in combinations. And uh, I think uh, people uh, acknowledged that uh, the way we played football was very attractive. And you, t you talk about the explosiveness around Arsenal at the time. There was nothing more explosive than the rivalry between Arsenal and Manchester United. Now, I, I know speaking to a lot of people who follow the game in England, even if the Premier League, you could argue, has gone from strength to strength in the 21st century. A lot of people who follow the, the game passionately really miss the rivalry between Arsenal and United. There's been nothing like it in the Premier League since. Do you miss that rivalry? Yes, because it was from another time where people were ready to die for their club, you know. And uh, today, uh, players move from one club to the other and uh, this rivalry has dropped a little bit. Even I think the rivalry between Tottenham and Arsenal has a little bit dropped because uh, it was unbelievable when I arrived. So that has a little bit changed because there's more mobility for, from the players to go from one club, one club to the other. And uh, Arsenal and Man United was a personal rivalry uh, between Ferguson and me, was a a player's rivalry because everybody wanted to be the best between Roy Keane or and or Vieira or Burkamp, you know, and uh, on, on that front, there was a history always when you played the next game was a history of a game before that uh, put everybody on, on, uh, on alert. I mean, like you said, there are some huge personalities in, in both of those teams. But what about you and Sir Alex Ferguson? You said that when you came face to face in those games, it wasn't a game, it wasn't for show. How intense was it between you guys at the time? And have you talked about it since? Yeah, of course, it was war. You know, it's as simple as that. And uh, uh, it is as, uh, 
it was always that's a game we couldn't lose and that's a game we wanted to win. And uh, I was questioned because at the start I came from for, from outside England. And uh, who is this guy who wants uh, to uh, unrest my empire here? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so it was a bit like that. And, and so have you talked about it since you've both left your respective clubs? Yes, we had uh, talks, of course, we had uh, since many meetings and uh, uh, it's funny how uh, uh, such a rivalry who was borderline, I must say, many times in the press or many times in our behavior on both sides. I, mm. I do not say I am the angel and Ferguson was the devil. No, it, was, <laughs> uh, it, it was on both sides, you know transformed slowly into respect and uh, friendship. Do, do you think Sir Alex misses it as well? I'm sure. I'm sure. Because uh, when I asked him the first time, uh, when I met him after he retired two years later, I asked him, uh, do you miss it? And he said to me, I miss the big games, not the small games. I miss the big games. When it was all... Uh, very tense. I said to him, yes, I know what you talk about. <laughs> this for three points, this to beat fierce rivals, this to go top of the Premiership tonight. The responsibility rests with Ruud van Nistelrooy. the final whistle and Arsenal do get their draw but it's not finished yet they're all around Ruud van Nistelrooy so in terms of what you're most proud of at Arsenal is it that that the 98 double win is it 2002 is it going the Premier League season unbeaten in in 2004 which is the one that you think yes that's that's my season where everything that I wanted to happen happened uh, never, you know, but I would, must say the Invincible season is something exceptional because we, we played one and a half years in the Premiership without losing a game. You imagine what that is with the quality of the teams that were around. So that was uh, exceptional. Uh, what is the most uh, joyful for me was the first double. Because I could show uh, I arrived uh, completely unknown and I was a little boy who watched uh, the Wembley Cup Finals on television in black and white, and I did lead my team out there at Wembley. Imagine the feeling you have, you know. It was something unbelievable. So uh, this 98 season was uh, absolutely fantastic. Even uh, everything clicked on the uh, scene. Uh, my friends came for the final cup final, and we had a big night out. Uh, it was unbelievable. So the one that didn't quite happen was the Champions League. I mean, you've said you never watched the 2006 Champions League final in Paris again since, since it happened live. But if you look back at the occasions where it could have been for Arsenal in the Champions League, do you look back instead, actually, instead of that final towards the quarterfinal defeat against Chelsea in 2004? Because I know so many people believed that Arsenal genuinely were the best team in Europe in that season. Yes, we were. And I look at it and I think uh, it's my fault because I played uh, three days before we played against Man United 
And of course, there were that game was on borderline at Villa Park, and uh, we lost a lot of energy in this game. And in the end, uh, we had made a good result at Chelsea, and we, in the end, we lost because physically we had left a lot in the game against uh, Man United three days before. That game was very demanding, and uh, that is a regret I have, yes. 2004, we were in a position to win the Champions League. So, obviously, things changed so much when the club left Highbury and moved to the Emirates, and you speak about the fact that you almost felt as if you'd helped build the stadium brick by brick because it's almost like you're going back to what happened at at Cannes and Nancy, you're having to to watch the pennies, even at this huge global club with this reputation all, all over Europe. Um, how difficult was it to get past the exit of David Dean, who you were so close to, to, to help you through this period? It was very difficult because we went into the most sensitive time for the club and the most vulnerable one period as well. And... Uh, Overall, on top of that, David Dean, whom I had a fantastic relationship with, left the club. It was very difficult, you know. And uh, I was torn as well between loyalty to him and loyalty to the club. And he asked me to stay at the club, fairness to him. And uh, I knew that will be a different way of life for me. And uh, as well... uh, a time where you had less resources to buy players and uh, therefore be less strong, especially because the other teams came in and invested a lot of money. I mean, on on the other hand, it did underline to, to people what a great developer of players you were. And maybe that was something that wasn't always clear to people who kept a casual eye on what was happening at Arsenal now. I mean, when you look across European football now and you see... A, what happened at, at Monaco where they they won Ligue 1 and got to the semi-finals of the, the Champions League. And then you look at what's happening at Dortmund now and how they're so widely praised for bringing those young players through and giving them a chance at such a young age when you look at Rayner and Bellingham and Holland and Sancho. Do you feel what's happening at those clubs vindicates your ideas? I think so. Uh, but uh, let's not forget that... Uh, uh, the players really perform at the age of, they know their job at 23. Before that, uh, uh, you win games, you lose games, you play well. But in a decisive moment, a team with more maturity, more experience, and most of the time it is a team with more money than you, uh, will get in front, the nose in front of you. And that happens to Dortmund, you know. If uh, the modern game has created elites, clubs, because they're huge financial resources and made our sport more predictable. If I ask you who will be champion in France, you would say Paris Saint-Germain. Who will be champion in Germany? Bayern Munich. Who will be champion in, in, Italy, in Italy? Juventus. So just in England, it's a bit more uncertain. But uh, overall, it's always now in the modern game, it's down to the, to uh, a huge power of money. And, and talking of those super clubs, you were, you were talking about how David Dean asked you when he left to to stay loyal to Arsenal and and you decided to do that. But you had these offers from not just France and Japan, but you had Real Madrid 
who you felt a lot of love for from, from your childhood, Juventus. You, you had this interesting relationship with Paris Saint-Germain where you got on well with the people yeah, who ran I the club them there. Yeah, I two or three times, Madrid two times, you know, just to be to guide the club through that sensitive period. And, and how do you feel about that now, Arsene? Is, is there, do you feel it's okay, I did the right thing? Or is there a little part of yourself thinking, I wish I'd gone and saw what it was like? Well, uh, I think uh, I stick to my values and I'm quite proud of that. And uh, I was the longest serving manager in Monaco in the whole history of the club. I'm the longest serving manager at Arsenal. And uh, maybe it's my personality. And, but at Arsenal is a bit special because I sacrificed a lot, you know, uh, for, for this club. And uh, uh, without uh, any hesitation, and uh, with complete commitment and uh, overall I'm, I'm i'm proud of that because i think i served this club with integrity and uh, loyalty and how do you think the perception of you as mr arsenal in a way has affected the sort of job that you've been offered post arsenal because clearly you've had a lot of interest from elsewhere yes uh, but uh, I'm not anymore in a, at an age where I can go for long-term uh, development. I can still do it, but somebody will have to finish the job, you know. And uh, overall as well, I wasn't ready. I thought I have dedicated my whole life. Let's see how life looks a little bit without football. It was painful, I confess. It was uh, not always enjoyable because uh, it's the end of a love story uh, that you... Uh, it's like you have no contact anymore at all with what was your life. And uh, uh, that was extremely difficult, but as well were in joyful moments because I had time available, could go anywhere in the world and visit friends. And it was good as well. It's part of it as, as, as well. If you were to go back to either coaching or being a general manager. There's that sense of, I, I guess in a way, you, both you and Sir Alex Ferguson, you're the, the last of a kind in that now we talk about head coaches in England. We don't talk about managers anymore. A manager is a guy who does everything. He doesn't just pick the team. He doesn't just train the team. And you, you've wondered, I know, whether that sort of job that would satisfy you, that sort of control is actually out there anymore. Are those jobs out there anymore or is it not possible in the modern game? Uh, I, I agree with you. These jobs are not possible anymore because uh, uh, the managers today don't negotiate the contracts. They don't uh, decide everything inside the club. But uh, overall, uh, it is a model that has gone. But the next model is not easy as well because... Uh, uh, when a coach has a place available that he didn't choose, it can create tensions inside the club as well, you know. And so now you have this role with FIFA, which I know keeps you very busy. And again, you've talked very passionately about the things that are important to you in the game, like equal opportunities for coaching for for, for young people in different continents, which you think is a little bit, well, which undeniably is a little bit uneven at the moment. And the women's game as well. Yes, of course. Because, you know, uh, I, I was guided my whole life, but uh, giving a chance to everybody who deserves it. At the moment, that is not true. So FIFA cannot be happy. And uh, 
Women's football needs to de be developed as well, but uh, you have two hurdles. The first one is the number of pitches available, because at the moment it's already fully booked uh, when only boys play. And uh, so we have to create the structures and we have to create the uh, qualified coaches as well to educate uh, the girls. And uh, that's at the moment is missing. I would say Europe is quite well equipped. The rest of the world suffers a lot. If you do look at the women's game, um, France has really stolen a march on everywhere else in the in, in the last while. You look at what not just what Lyon have done, but Paris Saint Germain go a long way in the women's Champions League. What do you think that other emerging countries in terms of women's football in Europe can can learn from what France is doing? Of course, in France they are professional, you know. And uh, that means they practice every day, they have uh, uh, good coaches. The education of coaches is quite good in France. And uh, now you have more and more known coaches uh, in men's football who move to women's football. And uh, that's good. Overall, I, I think uh, France is ahead, yes, on that front. Uh, you talk about when you were managing Arsenal, you had this, I think you put it as a monastic life devoted to football is is that still the same i'm uh, still yes very disciplined and uh, structured in my day and uh, i need to still feel that i am useful for something and uh, can can share my knowledge with people and uh, so i need yes to be to perform i get up early in the morning and uh, at night i go to bed and think at least i've learned or learned something or or shared something that i know with other people so you talked about how raw it was when you left arsenal and how Boris primarach who was your, your, one of your assistants for a very long time helped you when you were feeling sad after it all ended with Arsenal. But just today, actually, Mikel Arteta said in his, his press conference, I would like to see Arsene back around us. I, I mean, if he reached out to you, would you feel that there's there's something, you, you a, a way that you could help Arsenal move forward? Or is it still, you feel you've done your work and that's that? Well, uh, I, I've done my work, but uh, and uh, it's down to the next generation to do the work. I feel I left the club in very good conditions. If they need advice, I'm always able, uh, available to, to help on that front, you know. And uh, overall, I'm uh, convinced that the next generation can do the job. We are in a strong uh, situation. And uh, at the moment, I believe there's no dominant team in the Premier League and that Arsenal has a good chance we seem to, to, be, to mix it with the best and uh, be at least uh, in the back in the top four. And of course, you do lots of um, TV work as well for being. I remember when I lived in France watching you do and listening to you do a lot of co-commentary on, on TF1. And you sounded quite different to a lot of other co-commentators because you could really feel your love for the game. You felt really involved with it. I mean, how are you as a watcher of the game and as a, I guess as a supporter of Arsenal watching the games from a, from a distance? I, uh, I must say I'm very happy when we win at Arsenal and uh, suffer when the things don't go the, the way we want it. And uh, 
overall, uh, I, uh, game is always unpredictable. So I love, uh, I watch many aspects, you know, sometimes the tactical aspect, sometimes how uh, the game could be improved if the players made better decisions. Sometimes just I enjoy, let me transport by the beauty of a game. So I, 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 uh, I am not scared to watch four or five games a day and uh, be happy to do it. Of course, the other former Arsenal guy who I can think of is feels it so much when he watches his old team is is Ian Wright. Have you ever got together with him and watched any games with him? Yes, I've seen Ian uh, the World Cup in uh, in uh, Brazil a lot. I saw him uh, as well sometimes uh, uh, in uh, uh, fourteen in, uh, and uh, eighteen in Russia, but. Uh, I think uh, I watch him as well on television, you know, and sometimes we meet uh, somewhere in London and uh, I'm always happy to see him because he, he, he is what you call in England a character, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, he was an extrovert, uh, a guy where he was exceptional, uh, an exceptional guy. You, you do not meet many in your life like him. But, but you're not watching Arsenal together. Is that, that too much? Uh, I can do it one day, but I haven't done it with him. He talks too much for me. <laughs> uh, look, thanks very much for your time, Arsene, and um, best of luck with the book. Really great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.